I'm Katie Prejean McGrady, and this is Ave Explores. I'm going to say a word that will probably elicit some sort of a reaction within you. And I think it's important to pay attention to what that reaction is. Because this happened to me just the other day, and I had to catch myself. All right, here we go. Vaccine. So what did you just do? Did you roll your eye? Did you sigh? Did you think to yourself, oh, not another conversation about vaccinations. I'm so tired of this. Whatever response it might have been, it is silly to assume that this is not a point of conversation in your life, in my life, wherever you happen to be right now. It's all over social media. It's on the news. We can't really escape the conversation around getting the COVID-19 vaccine. And in fact, beyond that, conversations about vaccinations in general. Right now, at this particular moment in human history, maybe because of the pandemic, maybe because of the fact that we can share more information more quickly and more readily on social media than we ever have before in human history, maybe because people are trying to become more informed about all sorts of issues, maybe because everybody's opinion is just really dug in and galvanized, no matter what side of the aisle you might fall on. But it seems that right now, conversations around vaccinations, whether the common variety of vaccination, the ones that we get our kids when they're babies, so that they can go to school, or the COVID-19 vaccine, and the conversations around whether or not it's going to be required to have one to go travel or go to a sporting event or for our kids to be in school or for you to have a job, whatever it might be, the conversations around vaccinations are intense right now. And so I wanted in this Ave Explorers Faith and Science series to sit down with an expert in bioethics and talk about this. And ask the questions that I have had as I've read things across social media, as I've had conversations with friends, as I rolled up my sleeve and received my first and second dose of the Pfizer vaccine way back in February and March. What is the Catholic stance on a vaccination that is developed in a way that we know includes the use of aborted fetal cells? What is the Catholic perspective on a vaccination that is being given in an attempt to return the world back to normal because so much pain and destruction and death has been caused by this disease. What is the Catholic perspective on vaccinations in general? And why, as Catholics, is it important to dig into, I'll use the big word, the bioethics of vaccinations? I want to make it very clear right at the top that this conversation with Dr. John Berhaney from the National Catholic Bioethics Center is entirely rooted in his knowledge and his expertise and in our opinions concerning this particular issue. This conversation does not reflect necessarily the views and opinions of Ave Maria Press, although I will say we had this conversation with Dr. John Berhaney because we wanted to dig into the nitty-gritty issues of the principle of double effect, to understand what the common good is, to understand why the church does or doesn't advocate for certain things. Spoiler alert, Dr. John Berhaney in this episode says, as does the Vatican, as does the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, that it is completely and entirely ethical to receive the COVID-19 vaccine. And then we dig into why that is, and even look at why some people might be hesitant, and balance and weigh that. I think this conversation is very measured. I think this conversation is very encouraging. I think this conversation also really knocks on the door of why conversations around the ethics in medical and healthcare in general are important to have. 
This is, of course, part of our entire Ave Explorers Faith and Science series. We hope you click on over to AveMariaPress.com to find all of the content that we are creating just for you. But for right now, I hope you sit back and enjoy this conversation with Dr. John Berhaney about vaccinations and bioethics. Dr. Berhaney, thanks so much for joining us on Ave Explorers. It's great to be on. Yeah, I just learned about the program, but you're doing a lot of good work. Thanks. Thanks. Well, this series, especially, I think it's it's very timely to talk about the intersection between faith and science, which is something you know about in your life. So tell me a little bit about you, where you're from, what you're doing, kind of how you got into the work of bioethics and these big conversations that are happening in the church. Yeah, well, I've been at the National Catholic Bioethics Center for five years, but I started out in the humanities. I started out as someone who sort of woke up after high school wanted to understand, you know, why the world was the way it was, especially what ideas drove it. And I did degrees in philosophy and theology. I did a licentiate in marriage and family at the John Paul II Institute and had a great teacher there, a Dominican, who the Dominicans called Thomas Aquinas Reborn. <laughs> because That's a high compliment. It was. And he was Father Benedict Ashley. And he could integrate so much from philosophy, theology, science, history. And I was, you know, it really was everything I hoped for. I got my degrees. I went out to teach in Oregon in the early 1990s. And that was the first time that assisted suicide was decriminalized anywhere in the entire world, probably since the Roman Empire, you know, or something like that. And I was thinking, I want to do a PhD. I didn't know what I wanted to do it in. And all of a sudden, I was in the middle of this issue, and I worked with the diocese. We did talks. We lost, uh, and that was not good. But that really got me into bioethics. I went off and did a PhD. I worked in Catholic healthcare for six years. You know, it was really cool to work in a hospital, not a scientist, not a doctor, but see what it takes to deliver healthcare. You know, in today's world, it's actually a pretty complex organizational enterprise. And my job was to try to help the hospital, which was a Catholic hospital, maintain and strengthen its Catholic identity, uh, address, of course, issues in ethics. And I did that for six years. Very interesting work on to become executive director of Catholic Medical Association. So I'm uh, not a scientist, not a doctor, but someone who sought to understand and then got into all these issues in bioethics, which really you need to learn about science. You need to learn about medicine, helps to understand legal arguments, helps to understand how we got where we got on a lot of issues, and then try to pull it all together for people. And that's Mm -hmm. work I like doing. So that's fascinating to me that you're in these hospitals, you're in these, these rooms where conversations are probably happening about you know, end of life or even beginning of life issues, conversations around how do we provide the best human care, whether it's a person who's facing cancer, a person who's going through a routine procedure. We had Dr. Todd Warner on the show, and he was just talking about educating medical students to see the person, not just the problem. What do you think, and this is just a question that came up as we were chatting, so you're working in these Catholic hospitals. What sets a Catholic hospital apart? I mean, the same way I guess I could ask an educator, like what sets a Catholic school apart? Like what is the Catholic approach to an ethical human approach to healthcare? You know, one of the things I would say is they do take ethics very, very seriously. Back in the early 2000s, I went to a secular bioethics conference, you know, just 
American Society of Bioethics and Humanity, totally secular. And this guy comes up to me and he was working in the Veterans Administration. He said, oh, I want to go work for a Catholic hospital because no one takes me seriously. You know, mm-hmm. that's interesting. So anyway, there's that. I think they definitely care for the human person and for the poor. And I visited a lot of Catholic hospitals uh, as part of my work with the National Catholic Bioethics Center. They really do. I think that emphasis on personal dignity, care for the poor in a way that makes them do it with joy, whereas maybe secular hospitals do it as a matter of the law. Someone shows up. Yeah, there are some things they absolutely won't do, but they also struggle in a very complex society, in a very complex industry, so to speak, you know, healthcare delivery, highly complex. They struggle just to stay in business. So yeah, there are a lot of nuances to it, but those are some of the, the key things. With that nuance, you know, the you, you touched on, there are some things that Catholic hospitals won't do. The obvious one, of course, being providing abortion services. Like that's a, it's a no-no for a Catholic hospital. But even sometimes in the more minutiae elements of healthcare, again, out of my depth, couldn't even list them off. But do you find then that, so the work of the National Catholic Bioethics Center is probably really critical for a Catholic hospital, for even just an individual who might be discerning a decision, whether healthcare or otherwise. So tell me a little bit about the center, the work that you do there, and why you think it's really important in the church today. Yeah, well, we were founded in 1972. So that was one year before Roe v. Wade was decided. So that was 1973. And the term bioethics itself, which, you know, a lot of people say, oh, yeah, you know, I know that word. I've heard that word. That word was only invented in the year 1971. Oh, wow. Yeah to describe a whole new set of issues people were dealing with, abortion, assisted suicide, brain control with electrodes, genetic engineering they were hoping to do. Anyway, we were founded to be a resource for the church, for the entire church, the laity, Catholic healthcare organizations, and bishops, and we've been a significant uh, resource for bishops and dioceses. I would say, ever since. Uh, We were founded to help people to think through issues, to apply the church's teachings, to accept those teachings, to maintain them with integrity and with joy, and then to apply them in a complex world. So, I mean, that's what we were founded to do. How do we do that? Well, one thing we have is a 24-7 ethics hotline, which includes hot email, and we respond to anybody who has a question on bioethics. And sometimes it just drifts into larger ethical issues. In fact, I'm on call today and I took eight to 10 different phone calls and emails, you know, on COVID-19 vaccines, on arguments about abortion, you know, on a range of things. So we do that for the laity, for bishops. We put on a shop every two years for them a special conference at which we can bring in experts and we can talk to them about cutting edge issues, things that are going on. Uh, A couple of years ago, we did something on transgender and gender identity, you know, what's going on with that. So we educate bishops and a lot of times are on call as they're struggling to work through issues. And for Catholic healthcare, you know, do any number of ethics consults. And we have a program of review 
but we call it the Catholic Identity and Ethics Review. And as an outside agency or organization, we can look to see how are they upholding a set of guidelines that all Catholic colleagues in the U.S. accept called the Ethical and Religious Directives. We can look at how they are doing in upholding those directives, which range everywhere from uh, spiritual care to end-of-life care to beginning-of-life care to engaging in partnerships with secular healthcare systems, all kinds of issues. So that's what we do for Catholic healthcare. And we do the full range of issues from beginning of life to end of life to research ethics and business ethics. I'm curious by this. Like, do people call like deeply distressed because they have to make a decision just out of plain curiosity? Do people call looking to debate? I mean, what is working that hotline like? I would say mostly they're calling because they have a personal dilemma. And that's really, you know, I would say what the hotline is for. We get a call every few months, somebody wanting to debate, you know, ask a question. And I say, well, here's the answer. And then like the guy wants to start debating. That isn't a lot. We get general inquiries like, I've always wanted to understand this. A few, I'm writing a paper and I really need some arguments, sources. We try to help them, although we're not really there to help people get through a class. It's supposed to be for dilemmas, and and people have real dilemmas. Sometimes they are healthcare professionals. I had a call from a nurse today who was told, you've got to give drug this woman within the hour that arguably would cause a direct abortion, you know, And, and it was like, well, what should I do? So we definitely get that. We get people... I would say 40% of our consults are about end-of-life issues, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes about an individual wondering, should they do X or Y or not? And a lot of, I'm taking care of my father, you know, I'm taking care of my grandfather, and I'm getting this story, or I'm I'm being told I shouldn't do this, I must do that, and I want to know what's ethical, I want to know what the church teaches. Sometimes, you know, they can be, I would say, you know, intense. One thing I'm, I've been struck by, and I've been doing it for five years, on call probably at least once a week, and we do night call as well. That's pretty much only a phone thing. If you send an email, we don't get back in the middle of the night. But if there is a call in off hours, we try to get back within an hour. And one thing I would say that struck me is people really want to know what the church teaches, you know? And I've had to tell people some hard truths. A priest told me this was no problem, but, you know, tell me. And, you know, sometimes priests are wrong. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they don't know, or sometimes they want to tell people, it's okay, this is a tough situation. And, um, yeah, I would say some of the calls are intense, but apart from those people who want to debate, I would say even those intense calls when I say, you know, this is what the church teaches and this is what it means. The people are grateful. I mean, it means they've got a tough course of action. It's kind of inspiring because I personally haven't faced most of those situations myself in the same way. I mean, it's a ministry. It's not just a, you know, a bunch of talking heads. Like you're really, it's an accompaniment. It's walking with somebody through 
the decision to, and I'm just thinking of some of those issues, pulling the plug, or do I have this surgery that could save my life, but could potentially harm the unborn child? I mean, whatever the situation or the scenario might be, what is your favorite kind of question to answer? That's just kind of like a, I'm just curious. Like, do you have a specific topic that you get excited when somebody wants to dig into it? Yeah, I don't know if I have a favorite. I mean, there are a lot of questions at the end of life that revolve around nutrition and hydration and feeding. I've followed those issues for a long time. Actually, they started to be a deal. And I was in graduate school in the late 80s and began following them. And, you know, they're still very hot topics in individual people's lives. And the church has given some specific teaching on that within about 10 years plus, which is pretty recent, you know, according to church teaching. And to try to bring that together for people, which sometimes means, you know, you really ought to give this person food and water, or based on everything I've heard, when you look at this teaching, you don't have to. They might think, I heard I had to, and I think I must. And sometimes it's not called for, especially, you know, when someone has begun the process of dying. Anyway, you know, there are tough situations, I would say. I'll just tell you about, you know, ones that I found very tough and where they've been intense, and yet where I think people have been grateful. I've had three or four calls where women have had breast cancer, and they've been treated, and let's just say successfully, but then the doctor said, we're going to put you on a drug called tamoxifen. You know, it doesn't so much cure cancer, I think, as it can help to prevent its recurrence, you know, but it's some sort of kind of dangerous medication, and you're not supposed to get pregnant on. If you do, you know, there's a good chance that your unborn child could get some birth defects. So anyway, the standard thing is you need to get your tubes tied. Mm -hmm. You need pretty much to get sterilized. In fact, they may not even put them on the pill because that's a hormone, you know, and Mm -hmm. hormone thing is not good. Maybe an IUD. But the point is the doctor says, hey, I'm putting you on this and you can't get pregnant. So what does the church say about that, you know? Mm -hmm. And, you know, humana vitae is pretty clear. You know, we cannot do what is wrong, even for the sake of a good. And I've had to say, it's not right to get sterilized. I mean, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you're in a very tough spot. And how long are women put on this? You know, I remember the first time I was thinking, well, maybe you can get by for six months or something. It's like 10 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. Now, what do I say? You know what I mean? The church does not teach that we can engage in contraceptive behavior or pursue what's called direct sterilization, you know, where the goal Mm -hmm. is to do something surgically or whatever so that someone won't get pregnant if they engage in marital relations. And the church teaches you can't have that as a goal. So I'm not saying it's favorite in a sense. It's very challenging. It's very intense. And I guess what struck me is when I've worked through this with people, my sense is they want to hear the truth. And, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, it seems to me they've left the call saying, okay, you know, I understand. And I get the feeling they're going to try to live it. You know, that's the feeling I get. Yeah. I mean, why would they call otherwise if they're looking for the out? Maybe. But it seems like people would call with a genuine concern. Like, they, I mean, I know I've gone on the center's website and looked at the frequently asked questions. Yeah. 
and read some of the articles, listened to the podcasts. I'm curious how many calls you've gotten in the past year, whether from you working the hotline or just the conversations that are had within the center about COVID-19, everything from the treatments that are taking place to what's the ethical implications of some of these lockdowns to now the hot topic of the moment, the vaccines. Full disclosure, I got my Pfizer vaccine. I'm a breastfeeding mom currently too. So I, you know, I debated it back and forth of like, what could this potentially do? The whole nine yards. Had I known there was a hotline, I might've called you. Yeah. Uh, So I'm glad I know it now, but I'm curious. Let's kind of dig into this a little bit. The whole COVID-19 pandemic threw the world for a loop. And now within a year, we have these vaccines. Some of the statements, I'll just call a spade a spade, have been a little confusing. We know certain things have come from the Vatican. We've seen certain things from U.S. bishops. We've got vast swaths of misinformation floating throughout the internet. I know it's probably hard to say, okay, what's the definitive teaching? Am I allowed to get the vaccine? Me, of course, being somebody who already got it, but where does the church fall on this? And like, how are we supposed to discern and walk through what is a touchy subject in the world today? Yeah. Well, just you had asked about numbers and things. So I would say on our hotline, we probably get between 1,500, maybe getting up into the 17, 1,800 different questions a year, you know, so that's about the overall number. And I would say, especially over the last year, that we're probably into the hundreds of questions about COVID-19 and COVID-19 vaccines. In fact, I think Mm -hmm. at least two or three of my questions today were on vaccines, pretty much COVID vaccine. So yeah, it's been hundreds and, and the calls definitely spiked up last March. Just so we've gotten a lot what about these ethical issues? Yeah, it's been, uh, you know, you said, where does the church fall? And I got thinking of that game, which I don't know if you ever heard of it. It's called Twister. You know, it's mm-hmm. this game people <laughs> played decades ago. That comes to mind because there are multiple bases to cover here. So let's cover some of the easier ones mm-hmm. first. The church is not against science. You know, the church is not against medicine. The church has been one of the great sponsors of science, you know, certainly came to affirm, I would say, the the heart of the Hippocratic Oath, especially the prohibition against abortion and euthanasia that you find in it. You know, the church welcomed that into Christian culture. So the church is not against science and medicine. It celebrates efforts to prevent sickness, suffering, and so on, not to stave off death, at all means, you know, at any cost. But anyway, not against science or medicine, affirms all that good. We are stewards of lives. There's a fundamental duty we have, and there's fundamental good to protect our own life and health. You know, Mm -hmm. at the end of life, there's a teaching we're supposed to use ordinary and proportions to conserve our lives. So anyway, that's one. Church has a profound teaching on the common good. No man is an island and no Catholic is an island. So we need to protect and promote the common good. And again, you could do a a show or two on that. But the good of helping our society get back to normal, preventing disease transmission, all of those things, we should look for opportunities to do that. So then where do we get to, I would say, tougher issues, so to speak, and it has to do with something called abortion-derived cell lines. That's a term that was floating out there. We adopted it in some of our statements. 
But what does that have to do with vaccines and COVID-19 vaccines? This has really been uh, an issue that's bubbled up in the early 2000s, and the church addressed it in 2005, 2008. And it's been around for a while, but it, it really roared back, you know, with this whole thing about COVID-19 vaccines. And just in brief, went all the way back to the 1960s, and that's when a lot of modern vaccines, you know, stuff began. They were doing smallpox and, and some other things hundreds of years ago, but a lot of modern vaccines for measles, rubella, chickenpox, even decades after that, you know, a lot of that began in the 60s. And this one scientist said, if we're going to make a vaccine, which up till now has usually involved getting a virus, killing it, weakening it, altering it, doing something to it, and then giving people little, little bits of it so they develop an immunity, you have to grow a virus in something. Uh, viruses don't grow by themselves. And he said, if you grow it in animal cells, you know, every living thing is exposed to all kinds of impurities in this world, including viruses. And he said, how do I find a source of cells that is pure? that has not been exposed to all the dangers of the world. And he had this brilliant conclusion. Well, how about if I get tissue from a, an elective abortion? And he didn't want a miscarriage or anything that might have something wrong with it. He thought if I get a, you know, essentially a healthy baby that was aborted and get tissue, then I can use those cells. And he did that and a couple and taught other people to do it. So some of the cell lines out there today that are still in use go back to the 60s. And in the 70s and 80s, they made some more of these. And these have worked their way into vaccines, a bunch of vaccines. Measles, mumps, rubella, chicken pox, and a lot of other things. Not every single thing you'd get a vaccine for. And there are alternatives for some things. But this has become a challenge to a lot of, I would say, pro-life people, mm -hmm. Catholics. And actually, I think if you explained it to a lot of people, they would say, hmm, you know, that doesn't seem right, might be the first thing they'd think. And I hope the next thought would be, you know, can't we do this another way? You know, are there alternatives? And there are alternatives just in the general kid vaccine area. Shingles is another thing in which there are two options out there one that uses an abortion-derived cell line, one does not. Anyway, like I said, this issue bubbled up, and the church gave some guidance, some of it just advisory, Pontifical Academy for Life in 2005, some of it authoritative, that was Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith in 2008. They essentially said the same thing, although the, the Pontifical Academy for Life had more to say, but essentially the point was this. This should not have happened uh, we should not exploit abortion this way. And the people who are most responsible, well, are the people who provided the abortion or those people who are in charge of either creating or distributing these cell lines or even the vaccines that are made. I mean, they actually have a great deal of responsibility. But when you get down to the end user, the parent, you know, they go to the pediatrician, it's like time for your vaccines. Mm -hmm. There's a real good to those vaccines. Those parents, those kids, 
weren't around 40, 50, 60 years ago. They don't approve of abortion. They have had no role and they need the vaccine. Anyway, they said, you may use them. You should use alternatives if you can, Mm -hmm. but, and you should protest. You should call for alternatives. Well, anyway, that was the framework. When the COVID-19 vaccines uh, came out, this issue ramped up in a big way. Mm-hmm. And I would say, if anything, what the church has done is repeated that same guidance. And then I think we've heard two different channels, I would say, of striking some of the notes that we've heard from the past. One of those notes, I think we saw a few weeks ago when the Johnson & Johnson vaccine came out. This was kind of a new thing. The other ones, like you mentioned, Pfizer and Moderna had come out in December, effectively. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine actually uses an abortion-derived cell line to grow the virus that they end up using. So they manufacture the vaccine with the help of that virus. And some bishops you know, said, hey, this utilizes an abortion-derived cell line more than other vaccines on the market, more than Moderna and Pfizer, which don't use a, you know, a cell line in manufacturing, but they did some final tests. And my understanding is those were one-time tests to see if their technology worked. It's not something they test once a week or even once a month. It was one time. Well, anyway, some bishops said, you know, it's a good thing to try to distance oneself from these use of these cell lines if possible. And this Johnson and Johnson one uses the cell line in a more significant way. And those comments were critical that way. And incidentally, I, I think it makes sense. It does, I should say. And it's it's a good thing to do that if possible. Yeah. We can distance ourselves from the Johnson & Johnson vaccine because we know it's been used in the testing and the production, Pfizer and Moderna being more remote. Yeah. So I made that comment to a friend of mine who was like, I'm glad that I was able to get Pfizer when I did because I would definitely be having a bit of an ethical dilemma about if the Johnson & Johnson one was available to me. And this friend of mine pointed out, well, the Johnson & Johnson one's just one shot. So that one's going to be more readily available in poorer countries, to homeless populations, imprisoned populations. So is the one-shot element a greater good than the two-shot element to get it out to people who maybe don't have access to the two-shot? And so then it was like, well, we're right back to that same ethical question. I mean, it's more easily distributed, but it's got this attachment to abortion. So how do we debate that? I was hoping you were going to go back to my twister analogy of trying to keep yeah, exactly trying to down. What we're dealing with, you know, vaccination is not an intrinsic moral evil, like abortion, contraception, euthanasia, and so on. Mm-hmm. It is not although that that original abortion was. Was. And the people who get the tissue have to work hand in glove, you know, with the abortionists. They do. You know, they did and they do. But yeah, after that, we have a number of prudential considerations to balance. And I think the church calls upon us to try to do the most good possible. First of all, to avoid serious moral evil, but that's not what's at stake in the decision to use a vaccine. But after Mm -hmm. that, to try to achieve as many moral goods as possible, what are those moral goods? Those moral goods are the good of protecting our own life and health, number one. 
the good of protecting and promoting the common good and the good of, I would say, if we can distance ourselves from that moral evil from the past, great. But we also have to work to try to get alternatives so we're not putting people through this in, in years ahead. Mm-hmm. You know, so anyway, it's doing all those things. Let me give an example or two, you know, where this might come down. Some very concrete examples based on calls I got. So today I got a call from an elderly woman. She's in her 80s. She needs surgery. And she also, I think she's in remission from cancer, you know, but she's compromised. The doctor wants to do surgery, but he says, look, you must get a COVID-19 vaccine before you go into surgery. And surgery is, you know, it's coming up. Mm -hmm. She was hoping to hold out for a vaccine that had no association at all with abortion-derived cell lines, right? And I said, well, there's like one floating out there, but it may not even come on the market till the end of the year. And we're not even sure about that. Mm -hmm. You should be protecting, you know, your life and your health. In fact, you might want to get the J&J vaccine, despite what I've said about it, because you have a time element here. Right. Right. You know, in other words, yeah, surgery is coming up. If you have to go through two shots, wait two or three weeks may not work. So that's one example. Another example would be another lady called. She really wanted to try to use Moderna or Pfizer. But it turns out both of those vaccines, which use this new mRNA technology, they use a thing called PEG. It's got a long chemical name, some nanoparticle, but actually it's used in other biotech stuff and they know people can be allergic to it. Mm -hmm. This lady knows she's allergic. Mm -hmm. What should she do? You know, and the church, I would say, would, would want to say it's a good thing. You know, you're trying to avoid that association, but it's Mm -hmm. okay for you to get that other vaccine. And like Mm -hmm. I say, we're trying to achieve moral goods. And there's also the moral good of telling your doctor, your nurse, or someone, you know, I'm accepting this vaccine, but I want to tell you why I think it's not ideal. Mm -hmm. And also writing to these pharmaceutical companies and saying, hey, we want you to do this different. And they do respond. You know, that's the thing I would say about a market economy, freedom, people do respond when enough people say we want change. It happens all the time. And I think we Catholics should be doing more of that. Yeah. So that was going to be my question. We know that there's a moral good component to getting the vaccine. I got Pfizer because that's what was available to me. I know my mother-in-law got Johnson and Johnson because that's what the teachers in Pennsylvania were all given. Yeah. But I I don't want that to be the future. I don't want to have this debate every 10 years when there's another novel virus and and we're weighing the pros and cons. And oftentimes it becomes a political football in the life of the church and it galvanizes different sides. I actually think it causes great hurt and division in the body of Christ because it's become so tense. So is writing, is calling... I mean, short of like going and picketing in front of a Pfizer or a Johnson & Johnson office, like what can we do as Catholics to advocate for the more ethical route in the future? Yeah, it's a very good question. And I think, and I've followed this issue for closely, I would say for a good 15 years. And I've definitely seen a lot of 
individual outrage, you know, and protests, and sometimes writing, you know, sometimes refusing vaccines and things like that. I've also seen people, sometimes in Catholic healthcare, saying, there's nothing we can do, you know, or this all happened decades ago. You know, our hands are tied. In fact, we shouldn't even talk about it because if we mention this to people, they won't get vaccinated. And as you know, we don't want to stop people from getting vaccines. So let's not mention this issue. And I don't think that's the solution. I think Mm -hmm. concerted education about the issue is one thing. And then hopefully uh, some channels of helping people to take concerted, coordinated action would be another thing. And I do think we should be able to manage that as a church, you know? Yeah, I like that. That sounds like something that's reasonable. The bishops can issue the statements that they've issued, but then also, like you said, a market economy. I can make a choice. I can request something from my pediatrician's office for my children or even for myself, you know, if it's something that's not, I would say, as pressing as the current moment. I want to kind of clarify it then. So it's not unethical to get a COVID-19 vaccine. It's not unethical to get a COVID-19 vaccine. Is it allowed for someone to say, I still don't want one. I still refuse it. Because there's a group, there's a, a loud contingent, I would say, and I'm friends with some of these people who are saying, I don't even want the remotest of cooperation with it. If enough people do that, well, then we might not achieve herd immunity. So then what do they owe society? But then also, what do we owe them to respect their conscience? I mean, that's just kind of another, like you said, it's another thing that we have to put our hand on top of with all of this. So it's not unethical for me to get it. Is it unethical for someone to choose to not get it? I would say, well, how how would I put this? It is ethical to get it, and it can be an ethical decision to forego it to forego it for a time, might be to forego it for the foreseeable future. You know, let's just say, I'm not going to get it now. There could be several reasons. You know, some people might say, I'm 30 years old. You know, my own danger of COVID is not that great. There are dangers. There is literally a danger to any given uh, medical Mm -hmm. intervention. You know, you can look at the numbers and you can say, The odds are low, you know, but it's like winning the lottery. You know what I mean? Someone eventually wins the lottery, you know, and it is true that there are some bad side effects besides the, you know, the general ones, which, you know, you hear about and some people feel. So it can be ethical and prudent. And after that, you know, we're twister times a couple of things because arguably, uh, society shouldn't turn around and say, well, in the name of herd immunity, we're going to strap you down, you know, right. and shoot you up with this. In fact, there's, you know, practically nothing I can see, uh, think of as a medical procedure in this country where our society does it, you know? Right. Yeah, yeah, death row patients, but even they get years of appeals, you know? Right, right. Yeah. So anyway, on the other hand, if people don't get it, should they think of what can I do to minimize my own risk of being exposed or my mm-hmm. own risk of transmitting it? Yeah, they ought to think about those things, you know, and it may make a, a difference. We have to balance all these goods. You know, the church teaches that there are moral absolutes, and that is there are some actions that nobody should do 
in any place, in no place and at no time. So adultery is one of those. Murder mm -hmm. is one of those. You know, perjury is one of those. Euthanasia is one of those. The church does not teach that there are moral absolute goods, though. The church does not teach that there are some actions that everybody must do in every time and in every place. So there's, there's room for discretion, but just go back to the moral life. The moral life is all about avoiding moral evil and achieving moral goods. We've talked about achieving moral goods. And these aren't light matters. Uh, the fact that they're not absolute doesn't mean that they're, they're not important and that we shouldn't take them very seriously with great effort and great seriousness. So anyway, it is ethical to receive and it can be ethical to refuse. You ought to have good reasons. The desire to avoid getting caught up with these abortion-derived cell lines can be a valid reason, I would say. And it can be one consideration among several, you know, in the decision-making process. Yeah. I think that's probably the most balanced answer I've heard. Because I've asked a few different people, priests, friends. My sister's a canon lawyer, so we've discussed it. She got Pfizer. You know, and, and kind of the debate that she and I had in a, you know, a very healthy way was COVID-19 vaccines seem to be the pressing moral issue because we don't know much about the disease. We know that it has taken so many lives. If there was an abortion-derived, like directly abortion-derived, like a J&J &J style flu vaccine, I'd probably not get that. It's nuanced. That's the word that I keep coming back to. It's a very nuanced issue. It is, you know, and, and I would hope again as Catholics and as a church, we have a very rich moral tradition. When you think about it, we have an entire area of social teachings. We have mm -hmm. an entire area of what you might think of as personal ethics and the call to holiness. We have teachings about respect for life. Again, beginning to end human sexuality. There's a lot of content there. You know, something about this issue, and it's one reason I've cared about it, I guess, over all these years. And what I've observed, I don't know how much of public bioethics debate, but going back about 20 years, there was a huge public debate about human embryonic stem cell research. I don't know, you know, you became aware. I remember hearing about it as a kid, yeah. Yeah, it was the hot, hot thing, you know, starting in 1999. And now to get human embryonic stem cells, you have to kill a human embryo. That's what you have to do. You need those cells that are in the you know very early form of life, four to five days old after conception. So right away, around the year 2000, 2001, and all the scientists, you know, they wanted the millions and billions of federal dollars, but the scientists almost right away made this argument. They said, everybody thinks vaccination is a good thing, which pretty much, you know, almost everybody does. They said, but we benefit from abortion in making vaccines. And no one thinks that's a problem. So this can be okay too. Mm, slippery slope. Slippery yeah. slope. And then several years ago, uh, when David Delighton did those Planned Parenthood videos, and I'd say most people were horrified, mm -hmm. then they went and interviewed scientists. And what did scientists say? They said, well, we need to do research just to understand, you know, human life. 
and we need material for developing cures and we need abortion to do it. Mm. And we, we use vaccines and everybody thinks that's good. So, you know, after the third time, <laughs> what I'm getting the message is people are saying it's okay for vaccines and that's why you should be okay with us doing a few more things. And my own personal position on this has been to say, you know what? It wasn't really right in the first place. Mm -hmm. And we should acknowledge that it wasn't right. And we should find a way to make it not necessary anymore. And mm -hmm. it's actually possible. For years, starting in the early 90s, there was only one vaccine for shingles, and it used an abortion-derived cell line. But just about four years ago, another option came on the market, and it doesn't use a cell line at all, and it's more effective than the first one. Wow. Yeah. And I waited, and I got the second one. And that's, mm -hmm. that's possible, I would say, for really probably any given use in medicine. There are alternatives, and if there aren't, they can be developed. We can do it. All we need is the will, mm -hmm. and I think we can do it. I think we should do it. It's worth it, and that's, I come back as a church, as individuals like you and me deciding whether to get a vaccine, which one to, to choose and may, or hold out for, bishops trying to instruct, and I think the bishops... I do think they've been trying harder on this issue. Like I said, it's mm -hmm. bubbled along for 15, 20 years. Sometimes someone says something, but it's almost like a background thing. They've actually been speaking about this more over the last couple of years, I would say. Mm -hmm. And Catholic healthcare has a role uh, to play, again, in being a distinctive witness and source of distinctive care on this issue. I think they do have a role. Yeah. Well, I think that's it's a perfect place to stop and really, you know, contemplate all of it. Where can we follow more about you and the center? Yeah, our website is NCB National Catholic Bioethics Center.org. We have a podcast called Bioethics on Air that's available on Apple, Podcasts, SoundCloud, etc. Check us out. We're trying to be a resource for the whole church. Great to get connected with you and yeah. We'd love to stay connected in the future. Definitely. Thank you so much, Doctor. You know, after Dr. John Brahaney and I got off the Zoom call, I walked into the living room and I told my husband, you know, I think that was one of the best conversations I've had in a really long time. Because it was measured, it was reasonable, it dug into the content and the issues, it gave explanations of both church teaching and personal perspective, it really looked at why it's important to have conversations around bioethics, and even more importantly, why it's important as a Catholic to form our conscience when making decisions of any kind, but especially when it concerns our medical care and when it concerns the common good. I would really be grateful if you would share this conversation with Dr. John Perhaney. This podcast, I think, is a really important one, and I think it, it digs into an issue that is critically important to discuss at this particular moment. Our entire series on faith and science over at Ave Maria Press and Ave Explorers is in pursuit of helping Catholics understand how faith and science work together. And this particular issue, this particular moment in human history where we're discussing vaccines, we're discussing novel viruses, 
It's important to recognize that the church isn't just saying, batten down the hatches, God will protect us, but in fact is saying, hey, medical science and medical advancements are good. And we should take advantage of what is being given to us and what is being offered to us so that we can care for the common good, but you also get to discern how you approach that. So we'd love it if you'd share this podcast, if you'd give this podcast a rating and a review, that you would offer your insights back to us. We're always open to feedback. And of course, we'd love it if you would sign up for our entire Ave Explorers Faith and Science series over at AveMariaPress.com. Thanks for listening this week, and we will see you soon. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit SpokeStreet.com.